In my head are many facts of which I wish I was more certain. I was sure. Is a puzzlement. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Arasland. I'm David Daw. And this week we are starting the 1956 nominees with The King and I. And I have feel, oh, I have so many feelings, David. I have so many feelings. <laughs> yeah, this movie has parts of it. And by that, I mean, like, not even five-minute segments, though sometimes five-minute segments, but also just specific things, like specific sets that are, like, wildly good, but then also the just basic thing of it is so wrong-headed and terrible that you're, that it's like, oh my god. This feeling that I have is really what I expected to feel with Gone with the Wind, because so many people had said how amazing it was and then I watched it and I was like this movie is hokey and sucks and the acting is bad and it feels dated and just cheesy and awful this is a just like unqualifiable racist disaster that's very well acted and beautifully made as a movie yeah <laughs> with pretty good music i mean Rodgers and Hammerstein is like not my jam when it comes to music but like they could write a melody i'm not gonna begrudge them that <laughs> and i i that conflict is a lot it's a lot to carry yeah <laughs> like gone with the wind was such a relief when i watched it and was like this sucks <laughs> just like uniformly this is bad <laughs> and like this is a well-made movie that is like you said just irredeemably wrong-headed yeah and like i think i mean i feel like i'm a little bit more dismissive of this movie than you in the sense that i think my back of the envelope very quick opinion of this movie is like if we're going to excuse a pretty racist musical that rita marina was in then we're gonna do that with west side story and not this right oh yeah of course <laughs> like not even a question if we have to pick one like that's the obvious one this movie has its interesting moments but it's so irredeemably rogers and hammerstein-y both in like the music which i will grant yeah it's not necessarily my jam but they're quite good at what they do but also in the moral philosophy of this thing the way that it believes itself to be progressive is in some ways the worst thing about it Mm. Yeah, I hadn't really been able to put it into words that way. But yeah, that is also really true. (laughs) But yeah, I guess we should do the plot question mark because it's kind of just a series of situations. There's the premise, really, (laughs) I guess is more of what it is. Yeah. So this widow, this English widow is hired by the king of Siam, which is now Thailand, to tutor his children. And she arrives with her son, her young son, and then they have a series of 
cultural exchanges, basically. <laughs> yeah. Where the English perspective is heavily favored, though not as much, I think, as I feared it was going to be. Not to the point of, oh, look at these barbarian people. And specifically, that word is used in reference to the king. And there is a whole bit where Anna, who is the woman who goes over there to tutor his kids, says, you're many things, but you're not a barbarian. And then they basically have a dinner slash play for some visiting English diplomats. There is, toward the beginning, there is a woman played by Rita Marino named Tuptim, who is Burmese, who is given to the king as a gift. And there is a thread throughout the film of Anna encouraging him in rather passive-aggressive ways to end essentially the harem system, specifically because of Tuptim and the fact that she is in love with some other dude. Anna and the king get into a fight after the dinner because he had Tuptim captured when she ran away and then that fight breaks his heart to the point that he dies. He does also kill Tuptim's lover. Yeah. That guy does die. But not on screen. Yeah. Here's the thing is I think from a British point of view, this movie is like trying to be progressive, trying not to call these people barbarians, trying to be a like story of cultural exchange. But from a not-British point of view, this is the story about a horrible slaver who tries to get his shit together and then dies when somebody says something mean to him. (laughs) Like, that's the events of this movie. Wow. I hadn't really thought about that, but um, yeah, that is certainly part of it. I think uh, one of the things that was really interesting to me watching this, because While there are a lot of, uh, obviously a lot of differences between the Turkish harem system and the Thai harem system, the overarching Western British progressive feminism being like, oh, well, everything that you experience is so oppressive and awful. And then I'm seeing her in these costumes that were 35 to 40 pounds giant ass fucking hoop skirt and all of the Thai women are in pretty lightweight nice silks and look like they're having a good time and have the ability to move and I'm always thinking oppression is very easy to spot elsewhere (laughs) and to say like look at how oppressed these people are while not envisioning at all how you are (laughs) and it's so clear just visually in this film to me I found it very funny a lot of the time. And that's not the intention. Yeah. (laughs) I think the best moments of this are the moments where that is intentional, that are kind of few and far between, where there are sort of these moments of cultural exchange where there is an actual reversal of the assumption that, like, the West has it all figured out and Britain has it all figured out. And like, God, when are they just going to come around to act like we do? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is, like I say, pretty rare. They're the best jokes in the movie when it happens, but it's like, this is not a lived in place. And in some ways, that is good. Like, the palace sets are nonsense, 
but they are fantastic nonsense. I love all of them. They're all great. They're all huge, like pastel colored, bizarre non spaces that are amazing. But the downside of that is that Siam is just sort of this series of backwardsy things that Anna interferes with. And sometimes that's for the better, and often that isn't. And then... This movie also just abandons so much shit. Like, why is her kid even in this? Just so that there can be the opening musical number, I guess. And because the woman on whom it is based... It's important to note that The King and I is quote-unquote based on a true story, but it is based on... A novel that is based on a highly contested memoir of a woman who frankly lied a whole lot about shit. Not just about her experience teaching the king's children, but a a lot of stuff. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, I don't know how, I honestly have never been to the Grand Palace in Thailand, so I couldn't tell you how much of it is nonsense. I will say that there is a lot of iconography in this film that is borrowed from Thai art and aesthetics and the big ballet number that is the interpretation of (laughs) of uncle tom's cabin which is called small house of uncle thomas i mean obviously i'm saying this as somebody who is an american but the choreographer definitely did a lot of at least you know cursory research i guess into Thai masked theater and Thai dance because a lot of the movements are correct. I mean, they're just how it works. <laughs> I mean, Jerome Robbins is a pretty great choreographer, and I was surprised to find out that he was the choreographer for this, but they did have a dance consultant, which I thought was surprising given that it's 1956. <laughs> Yeah, when I say that the sets are nonsense spaces, I mean just, like, literally rooms are not laid out like this. Just, this is not how indoors is a thing. Not that, like, I think the set dressing is a-cultural or they have not done their research on that. It's just, like, when you first go in there, it's, like, three separate pink platforms in just wide, empty spaces with no furniture in it. It is just not how anybody anywhere would lay out a space because it's like a space for filming. And I think it's like a really pretty room for filming. It just like isn't architecturally sound in terms of just like being a room and not not being a room you would find in Thailand. Just like straight up, this isn't a room. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a, a soundstage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, that 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 makes sense. But I don't really have it that much of a problem with things like that. Oh yeah, no. Kind of my favorite thing about the movie. The whole thing is very fantastical and, you know, that's I guess fine in a way, except when you get into the casting of it and the representation of the Thai people, <laughs> of which there are none in the cast and no one who has a speaking line is even Asian of any kind. And the accents are something. They're like nebulously Asian, question mark. Yeah. And everybody's got brown makeup on. And it's a lot. 
Yeah, I mean, I am just kind of exhausted the more we talk about this. I understand that the, like, choreography of the Uncle Tom's Cabin thing is interesting, but to me it was just, like, that was the point where I just couldn't fucking take this movie anymore because it was the point where it was like, okay, so even when this movie is doing something I like, I hate this movie. (laughs) Because, like, that segment is... Everything that I think is actually interesting about this story, it is actually trying to look at Thai culture and bring something from it. It is trying to tell a story about cultural exchange because these women have read Uncle Tom's Cabin and have gone, hey, I actually live in slavery. Like this story is meaningful to me and my life and are trying to pull out the things that are about their specific experience, even though they don't completely understand the experience they are reading about. That is all super interesting, and it is all happening with a white woman talked like this in a lot of narration. And it's like, well, fuck, then like, then all of that is ruined for me. Yeah. Rita Marino is Puerto Rican. (laughs) I don't know if that makes you feel... I forgot that it was Rita Marino doing that and not the very white woman that's like the head concubine that has the very strange speech about like, there are just some men you want to give infinite second chances to. Oh, Lady Tiang. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot that it was Rita Marino and not her that is doing that because they're both... Not doing great accent work, but you're right. The one doing that is Rita Moreno, and she is not white. (laughs) She's also not Thai, but she's not white. Yeah, I I think that's one of the things that really gets me in this film, is that it is one of the first times that we have seen in a Hollywood film the representation of non-white people at this level. But all of them are playing an ethnicity that they are not. Yeah. It's so infuriating (laughs) because of that. I'm like, okay, great. So you have Rita Marino, who is this, frankly, fantastic actor, very, very talented singer, you know, national treasure, frankly. Yeah. But she's not allowed to be Latina. She is just, oh, you're nebulously browner than random white people, so it'll be easier to paint you and one of the guards is a light-skinned black man everybody is painted the same color too which is another thing that's very fucking weird because like no human beings are that way and this movie is in cinemascope so it's very much in color but like everyone is exactly the same color yule brenner is like slavic and french and they were like yeah you've got cheekbones sure asian (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about Huel Brenner for a minute, because, like, Huel Brenner is the best example of how this movie is, like, holographic. Like, in in the sense of, like, every piece (laughs) of it is bad, but also interesting and occasionally amazing in the exact same way every other piece of it and the whole of it is. Yeah, that's... it, It is holographic. It is, like, it is the... It is the hyper real that becomes its own thing. It's like it's no longer an imitation of the real. It is its own real thing. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> anyway, welcome to Baudrillard Hour. <laughs> yeah. And like, we got to get deep into theory because if this is just practice, then like, God. But like, this, the performance he is giving is, again, like, in this project where it's like 
do I forgive him all the shit about this performance that is wildly racist because that's the brief, you know? Right. Like, that's that's the part. And he is doing, I mean, both physically, obviously, but also in sort of the way that he is sort of projecting masculinity like this racist stereotype, but projecting masculinity like this character in a really interesting way and projecting it rather than being it. it, Like, he is doing really interesting stuff with this character that is not necessarily that interesting and definitely racist. Yeah, it's uh, that's what I'm talking about with feeling incredibly tied up about this film. Because, like, I didn't like it. I spent from basically the first moment that a quote-unquote Thai character comes on screen, uh, or even before they come on screen, because Deborah Kerr, who plays Anna, says something about, like, oh, you know, they look so fearsome. And Thailand is actually known as the land of a thousand smiles. That, like, Thai people are notoriously friendly. (laughs) And we haven't even seen anyone yet. And then this guy walks on stage, or stage, on screen, played by Martin Benson, who is this, like, British character actor and is also of, like, Eastern European descent and also has a whole lot of cheekbones, which apparently was, like, the... That was the casting director's whole MO was like, who has the most cheekbones? We will cast them. And he does look really scary and he glowers and he is very intimidating. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) Why is this the thing that we're seeing here? And Anna Leonowins, I don't know how to say her last name. Um, the, The real woman on whom this is based her memoir basically says that the king was this, you know, horrible monster and he was abusive and just a real tyrant. Yeah. And his family, which, again, is, like, not the most neutral source, of course. But, you know, he was a monk for 27 years before he became king because he inherited the throne in his 40s. And he was apparently incredibly gentle and had already made a lot of moves toward completely ending slavery in Thailand and that people who had observed both the slavery system in Thailand and the servant system in Britain would say that the slavery system in Thailand was actually better and easier to get out of. (laughs) Which, like, obviously, if you're coming to this from an American perspective, which Rodgers and Hammerstein and the writers of this film would be, you're thinking of it in terms of transatlantic slavery, which was fucking horrible, and there was no way to get out of it, and people were owned for their whole life. Whereas in Thailand, you could apparently, like, voluntarily become a slave to get out of debt for a period of time, which is just indentured servitude. But the real king apparently also let a number of his concubines just go and like arranged marriages for them and made sure that they were taken care of so a lot of the stuff that anna takes credit for were things that he'd already done before she even arrives in thailand (laughs) the thing that i think bothers me in terms of like storytelling because obviously the thing that bothers me is just like this thing is fundamentally racist and just doesn't work but from a storytelling perspective this movie has like eight different threads and doesn't really resolve any of them because 
it kind of realizes that if it comes down one way or the other about any of this stuff, somebody would be unhappy. Like, it never really becomes a romance because he just falls over dead as soon as that's sort of hinted at. The prime minister guy keeps coming in and going like, you've ruined him with your Western ways and he could have been such a great king otherwise. But like, he doesn't seem to have Westernized in any way except for hiring Anna. That's it. And letting his kids read the Bible, basically. (laughs) Yeah. And like, a movie that actually took some of this on and had a point of view about it would probably still be offensive. Because of when this was made and the source material it's based on and who would be making this film. And the casting, the inevitable casting. (laughs) Yeah, but like, I think the thing that bothers me the most about it is I get to the end of all of that and go, it was all fucking pointless. There was just like nothing to that story. It was trying very hard to not be racist with a fundamentally racist premise. And as a result, it just kind of muddled around in a fundamentally racist playground, and then the movie was over. Sometimes the things it did were interesting, sometimes they weren't, but they never really connected to anything or said anything. I feel like the takeaway from this film, if we wanted to like find, what is the moral of The King and I? is that American slavery was bad and Abraham Lincoln was good. (laughs) Which is a weird moral to take from a movie about a British woman going to teach children who are the princes and princesses of Thailand. (laughs) And like, God, I would excuse the part of that plot line where he's like, can't think of any way to help Abraham Lincoln besides to send him a bunch of elephants. Because like, honestly... Bet the North would have won a little bit faster if it had a bunch of elephants. But, like, I also... Yeah, and apparently the true story there is that he sent a letter to Lincoln's predecessor offering him some elephants just as, like, a cross-cultural gift. But it didn't arrive until Lincoln was president because it was the 1850s or whatever. And Lincoln declined because we didn't need elephants, I guess, in the forests of the United States, which gonna have to quibble on that. That would have been rad. Yeah. Two big (laughs) mistakes from Lincoln. One, hiring a Democrat as his vice president in 64. Two, not accepting elephants. Close third, going to the theater. Yes. Yes. Like the not a bit (laughs) thing to say about this is... There's something that kind of animates the film briefly when he and Anna have this connection of like, hey, Lincoln's fucking great, right? Like he is putting principles into practice and doing this hard thing and deserves support. You're like, yeah. And like, oh, it's going to come back and reflect in these interesting ways on him and like be a, a like real touchstone for our story going forward and like kind of sorta but like it goes away for a long time and then when it comes back you're like oh right she had them reading uncle tom's cabin yeah oh when i say that this is the message that i am taking or the moral of the king and i that i'm taking away it is not that it is a pervasive part of the plot of this film. It's the only clear moral, and it's a sub-sub-subplot that is mostly there to facilitate, let's be real, a big, like, Thai-inspired Jerome Robbins ballet, which, 
If that had been kind of the only thing that I had seen and hadn't been narrated or had been narrated, just not in the like halting fake Thai accent. Yeah. I think I would have liked this a lot better. I mean, the lead dancer for that piece is a woman named Yuriko who actually died last month in March of 2022 at the age of 102. Um, But she was a big deal in Martha Graham's dance company. And I studied Graham technique when I was a kid. So like for me, it was very exciting to see her. So I think that probably carried me through a lot of it <laughs> in a way that that didn't matter at all to you. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I mean, obviously I do not have the personal connection to it that you do, but I think for me it was more that like at, at points, this also happened with the old Burnish performance of like, all this artistry in the service of this. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> that it it kind of wrapped around to piss me off because I was like, this is all happening within a package where I can never truly enjoy this thing. Although really talented artists are doing really hard shit right now. And it just kind of wrapped around to piss me off. Uh, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, just to briefly touch on Yuriko, because she was a really interesting human being, and this will pad out us, you know, hating on this movie. She was born in the United States, spent some time in Japan because she was sent away when her siblings died in the 1919 pandemic. She was six when she came back. Ended up in an internment camp during World War II because she was a Japanese American. Then went to New York, joined Martha Graham's Dance Company. She originated the role of Eliza on Broadway and then obviously reprised it in the film. And then later directed a revival of The King and I in 1977, starring Yul Brenner. <laughs> Who was at this point, like, I mean, that's 20 plus years past this. Like, did Yul Brenner do anything other than just play this part his whole life? Yeah, it's wild. I know the answer is yes and yet. It feels like on and off his whole life, he was just like, oh, yeah, you need somebody to uh, to play the king and the king and I, I got you. <laughs> yeah. And like, just increasingly actually able to make work the weird third act turn where the king is suddenly dying and you think he's faking because the right yeah i just love the exchange of being told he's dying and anna going what is he dying of and the, the, lady tiang going who can say what a man dies of and it's like a lot of people <laughs> literally almost everybody it's pretty unusual to be like i don't know he just died just nobody knows yeah uh, yeah. At the time, it really does seem like he's just dying of, like, Anna yelled at him. But, like, this time it took, because she's already done that, like, 50 times. So, yeah, this movie is not good. No. But it is, it is, there were so many talented people working on this and doing the best that they could with the worst possible assignment. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm sure actually there are, there are certainly worse assignments. There are ones that are like, thinks that they're good-naturedly racist or like virulently intentionally racist. But I guess that kind of stuff doesn't really attract a whole lot of talent. So no, I think this is the worst possible assignment. <laughs> yeah, this is the... The thing about this is that I can totally see how you would go. I can fix this. Oh, we can make this work. No, 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 but uh, the hole keep get hole keeps getting deeper. I keep digging, and the hole just keeps getting deeper. Like I understand how you could look at the king and I, especially in the fifties, and go like, "Hey, there is a kernel of something here that we can do respectfully, and like we can make this story work if we just put enough talent and enough like thought into it. We'll turn this thing around." And then, like, no, there's just no turning it around. Like, it's just fundamentally flawed as a thing. I will say that there was a production that was at Lincoln Center a few years ago that won the Tony for Best Revival, where they actually just cast Asian people in the Asian roles. That would help a lot. Yeah. That would go a long way. I definitely feel like that was certainly uh, a big reason why it won. Yeah. But, and and this is a thing that, like, I'm going to quibble on forever because, I mostly because it annoys the shit out of me when they do this with, like, Middle Eastern casting where they're like, yeah, this Persian actor should definitely play this Arab character. And you're like, okay, but that's not... But they're not the okay, whatever, fine. I know that you're like, oh yeah, like brownish and from the Near East, you're all the same. But yeah, it's not like they cast Thai actors in all of the Thai roles. <laughs> but it was better than casting white and black and Latina people in and then painting them. So that's something. Yeah. <laughs> like I I don't know. It got me thinking about a couple years back, there was a, a production of Oklahoma on Broadway that was like dirty, sexy Oklahoma that was getting good word of mouth. Yes. And my parents had already sort of seen the bigger shows on Broadway for their trip. And I was like, oh, that Oklahoma, I've heard good things about it. And my parents went to go see it. And their reaction was like, they did a good job with that premise. They did make Oklahoma a story about like a bunch of horny people in kind of a dark heart of America thing. Like this place is deeply flawed and jingoistic, but like, then why are you doing Oklahoma? (laughs) If you're that fundamentally opposed to what Oklahoma actually is, which per plenty of reasons to be fundamentally opposed to it. Like, yeah. (laughs) Like why not just do a new thing? And like, because America loves frontier musicals. Apparently. If I've learned one thing from the 1950s. And like, I, uh, it, like King and I feels like that kind of a thing. Like, I didn't see it. I, it may have been transcendent. And like, I definitely don't want to dismiss the work of the people that did it. But I do sort of think, hey, we cast racially appropriate people in King and I does sort of feel like, why didn't you just give them something else to do? Like, why didn't you let them... To do a different show. <laughs> let them tell a story about what, like, Thailand is like. Oh, like... man. that See, that's what I want. That's what I want. I want fucking Thai actors and choreographers 
and composers and writers and directors to put together Anna and I. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would watch the shit out of that musical. <laughs> For sure. Uh, should we rate this? Um, yeah, I, I, there was something that you said just a second ago that I wanted to highlight. Oh, it was that, that you didn't want to take away from, you know, the good work of the people who participated in this. And that is so much of what I feel watching this is like, man, I feel bad just being like, I don't know, fuck you, Rita Marino, for taking this role. And you, Yul Brenner, but like, kind of fuck you. Yeah. I mean, like, I... You know, just at some point, you, there's enough fucking bad apples in this barrel. Right. We got to throw it away, even <laughs> if there's really good apples in here. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, uh, uh, how do you rate this? Two? <laughs> I... And, like, that's for the sets. <laughs> yeah, I was going to go... And the choreography. <laughs> I was going to go all the way up to a three. On the basis of just the artistry is here, but just like the the there's just nothing for it to latch on to. So you just end up, you know, usually we kind of insult a movie by going like all this artistry is just kind of happening in a vacuum. But when that happens in this movie, you're like, oh, thank God it's not connected to anything. I can just take it on its own terms. Yeah. 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 I, I'm i fine with two. I mean, I uh, this is like a... a... It's it's the thing where I think after we had given, like, two ones in a row for stuff that just, like, bombed the screen test of time, which obviously this does, we were like, we can't just, like, give everything an, an F and then, like, not look at all at the the artistry of the film. And that's true. Um, But, man, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially, like, in this kind of a case. Where you are, all the decisions spring from this fundamentally bad idea. Right. And, like, people are making good decisions out from that tree, but, like, the fundamental thing is bad. Right, like, the tree is rotten at the root, (laughs) like... Yeah, exactly. And, And so, like, you know, my first instinct was three, but when you said two, it was just like, I don't have an argument for three. It was just my first instinct. I think two is totally fair. Like, this is a movie with artistry to it, but in service of bad. <laughs> like, it's... Yeah. 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 Uh, and, like, even uh, above and beyond, like, the apparently horrible representation of an actual king because like i don't love the whole concept of royalty in general so like i'm not super eager to defend somebody even if they were like oh well he was a pretty good king but i am gonna like present that that argument was made he was still a king kings are you know inherently unjust and represent inequality and like i've been to thailand and it is still a place where there is a great deal of like pretty extreme and visible poverty but the way that all of the thai people in this film are represented as either like uh, many tyrants themselves or just infantilized like dimwits all of the wives are like haha we not so smart and i'm like can we not do that like yeah i mean here's the thing 
in almost every harem system in the world, because they didn't have a whole lot to do otherwise, they were incredibly well read. <laughs> yeah. They had to be smart enough to not bore the guy who, you know, owned them to death and competed to be the best conversationalists, the most talented musicians, the best dancers, because that was how you got ahead in this society that was very unusual in which they lived. So this idea that, like, all of his consorts and wives and concubines would just be these, like, you know, bimbos because they were concubines is really just gross and annoying <laughs> yeah but i also think like that is the the alternative there involves explaining what's going on here with enough clarity <laughs> that like Fair. like and not even like they shouldn't have done that just like that is the unreality of this thing is like it's all surface level it's all just like Look at how different these people are, but does different always mean bad? A lot of the time it does, but not always. And you're like, <laughs> I guess that that's, I mean, when you're just like looking around at like England in the 19th century, I guess that counts as kind of progressive, but it's just exhausting. Yeah, it really is. But I did just want to say, like, it's not just the casting that is racist. Like, Oh, for sure. That, I think, is why, like, even if you are, you know, if you cast 100% Thai actors in all of the Thai roles and Tuptim was a Burmese woman, like, it's still racist because of its across-the-board portrayal of an entire ethnicity of people. And don't watch this movie. No. I'm, I feel confident saying that because I felt like, I literally felt hot with anger through this entire film. It took me like four hours to watch it because I had to keep stopping it and doing other things because I thought that my blood pressure was going to go through the roof. Yeah. And like, with the exception of Yul Brynner, so much of what is good about this movie feels like a dry run for West Side Story. Not just Rita Marino's performance, just stylistically, so much of this feels like, well, then we're going to do West Side Story. The way that we are telling the story of musicals on film in this movie is going to kind of take another step forward, even though that movie has its own problems um, that we will get to when we get to West Side Story. It does feel like it's a step up from this. Yeah. Oh, I agree. On both counts. On both counts. That This really begins the musical on film structure of like each song has its literal set piece. <laughs> They're like, oh, we're here for this song and then we're over here for this one yeah which is done to i think more realistic effect anyway <laughs> in west side story <laughs> of course you would be hard pressed to be less realistic than this film so next week we are watching giant which is the only movie that we will watch for this project with james dean in it so that's exciting I, yeah, I did not realize. And he was posthumously nominated for Best Actor, I think, for this, so. Okay. 
And also Elizabeth Taylor is in it, which is, you know, usually a pretty fun experience. And also at 197 minutes, I think this is our third longest film of the year. Yeah, 56 is a big year for unnecessarily long film. Oh, I apologize. Around the World in 80 Days is only 182 minutes. Um, so it's so Giant is uh, the only film longer than Giant is Ten Commandments. Yes, um, at 220 minutes. Good Christ. Yeah. Anyway, tune in next week to find out if Giant is uh, any good and if it is worth being 197 minutes long, which I'm going to let you know, generally, I don't feel like any movie is. (laughs) Yeah. There are exceptions, but for the most part, I'm like, uh, the editor didn't do their job. (laughs) Yeah. And until then... Uh, I got it go i gotta Uh, go guys i got (laughs) it i'm this was exhausting people have put enough work into trying to figure something out with this story and i'm not going to be another one of them goodbye (laughs) goodbye your majesty and honorable guests i will tell you end of story is very sad ending with sacrifice